I hear the coughing, and I know there's a lot of uh, a lot of that going around. I know that a lot of it's sinuses, and there's others. Uh, sorry, there's others in our congregation who've been sick, and we're missing them. There's some traveling, we're missing them. I know a lot of you are about to be traveling, so we will miss you. Uh, but it's great to be here together on this Lord's Day. It's great to have the visitors that we have here today. We appreciate your presence and your faithfulness to serve God while you're away from home. Uh, if you're in this area and you're just looking for a place to worship, I hope that the things you see we do are focused on God's Word and, and exalting Him. And that's, that's really the purpose of our study as, as we come together to study God's Word as well. If you want to get your Bibles and turn to Acts 17. Acts 17 is uh, where we'll be studying from this morning. We've been working our way through the book of Acts and now made it to chapter 17. Um, and so uh, there's a lot for us to learn in this book, but uh, we're to a lesson now that's in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. We, we studied about uh, his missionary journey some a couple weeks ago, and we'll, we'll continue that study today. When we're growing up, we kind of learn how the world works. Uh, Joseph has come home from school a few times this semester uh, and let me know that there's some boys in his class who are seven years old. Seven years old. And one of them says he's even like nine or ten years old. So that's pretty amazing, right? I mean, to be in kindergarten and to be like nine or ten years old, wow, you know? And we look at that like, wait a second. Um, it doesn't take us long to start to see how the world works, does it? We start to learn that, you know, if we just tell a little fib, then all my classmates will think a lot of me. And they'll start, you know, looking at me as though I'm, I'm better than them. And that's really what we're after. Uh, and we learn it from an early age. Does that ever go away? Do we ever stop wanting everyone to look at us and think that we're great? Well, some of you are like, I don't care to, to be seen at all. Like, I'd rather just be in the background. But, but inside, there is a desire maybe inside of us, at, at least on some level, to be well thought of, to have a high re to be given a reputation, high regard by those who are around us. And, and in some ways, we're willing to do things that are not so good in order to have that reputation, in order to be well-loved by other people. And the world has taught us that. Uh, in Bible class, a uh, comment was made that it pressures us, like the world is pressuring us to be like the world, to do the things that the world does. And that's very much the case. And we learn that from a very early age, and it really never goes away. The world is always trying to pressure us to be like the world, to do the things that the world wants us to do. Well, as we come into chapter 17, in the middle of this uh, missionary journey that Paul is on, we're reading and studying a text where we see the fruits of that. We see the fruits of those who are trying to satisfy the, the desires of the world around them, who are doing the things that uh, are wanting to do the things that uh, the world around them approves of and that, that is acceptable. But it's interesting as we study this, we notice that these are very religious people. They're not people of the world who are really out in the world and giving, over, giving themselves over to all kinds of evil things. These are very religious people who have this sense of wanting to have approval of other people. And we'll notice it doesn't go so well for them. Let's read this together. Acts 17, starting in verse 1. It says, Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, 
where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. But some of the Jews were jealous. So they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Paul and Silas has caused trouble all over the world, they shouted, and now they're here disturbing our city too. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They are guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus." people of the city as well as the city council were thrown into turmoil by these reports. So the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond and then they released them. Now if you're reading along with me you notice a completely different translation. This is the New Living Translation. I like how it reads. It's very flowy. It, it, it just sounds a little easier to listen to. If you weren't reading along you probably enjoyed just hearing the way that that was written. But as you read through this text you notice Paul and Silas have been preaching and teaching in Thessalonica for three synagogues, three weeks, three Sabbaths. They've come in and they've preached the message of Jesus, how Jesus is the Messiah, that God has proven he's the Messiah by raising him from the dead. And as they hear these things, some of them believe, but many Greeks who, who feared God believed. And even some of the devoted women, some of the, the, the women of high standing, it says, believe. Now, in the Roman society, uh, women were not equal to men. Uh, they, they had some level of independence if they had four children. That's interesting. Or if they, their husband died and they were a widow, they, they could own a business, they could own land in those situations. But other than that, they were not really given much uh, attention or credit. They had some influence, but not a whole lot. So as we read about these prominent women, we read they're probably the more independent kind. They've, they've probably uh, been very prosperous. And, and we read about these God-fearing Greeks. We see that they're not Jews. They're still Greeks, but somehow they've, they've come into the synagogue and heard these things. Maybe Paul, as he's been tent-making, has been promoting Jesus among the Greeks even, knowing that they too can receive the gospel. And they have come in desiring to know who Jesus is. And notice the Jews get jealous about this. They're upset because they see these Greeks accepting the truth and they see these women these prominent women accepting the truth and being added into the body of christ and as we studied earlier in acts they're not being told you have to keep all the jewish traditions and the jews just cannot handle it and so they they go to find paul and silas to drag them before the city council to have them persecuted but they can't find him so they drag jason and other believers and they speak before the council, and they say in the ESV that these men are turning the world upside down. 
They've turned the world upside down. And they've come here also, turning the world upside down. It's a fascinating uh, phrase that they use there. Fascinating idea whenever you stop and think about what they're saying. Have Paul and Silas, as they've taught the gospel, really turned the world upside down? Well, think about that for a minute. What would it take to turn the world upside down? What would happen if, if uh, what would we be doing to say the world is turned upside down? Well, really, they're not asking the Jews to stop being Jews. They're not asking Gentiles to stop being Gentiles. They're not really uh, asking for a major shift in all of society. As they say, Jesus is the king. They're not asking for Caesar to step off the throne. They're not asking for uh, the city to give them special privileges or to call them by a different pronoun, or to do something that uh, shows that they are of a, of a higher standing and to, to exalt themselves. That's nothing along the lines of what they're doing. They're not asking them to ignore reality and believe something that's totally bizarre. So how is it that they're turning the world upside down? Well, they're saying things that the Jews don't like. And they're telling people the truth. They're actually telling people the truth. The actual truth is the world is upside down. And the truth is trying to set things right side up. It's trying to fix the problems that are going on in society by expressing what the truth is. But as they're expressing what the truth is, the truth is not what it seems. A lot of these people, these Jews, have beliefs based on all of their traditions and the way that they're supposed to live and the way that they're supposed to act toward Gentiles and the way they're supposed to treat one another. And that seems like that's, their, that's the truth, but it's not. The truth is not what they think it is. And what they think it is is that sinners are sinners, they're evil, and they're deserving of judgment. And ultimately, what the Jews want is for God to come and save us righteous Jews from those evil people. And that's their reality that they're living in. Paul and Silas comes in and, come in, and they teach the same things Jesus has taught. That, in fact, God loves the sinner who repents more than he loves the self-righteous who look down on the sinners who are trying to repent. He even loves the sinner who repents and rejoices over him more than all the 99 sheep that never went astray. And that's totally backwards from what they think and what they understand life to be. As they look out with prejudice and judgment against others, they can't imagine God being that way. But that's who God claims to be. As we read through the New Testament and study the life of Jesus, we notice his teachings are bizarre. The truth that he promotes is not the truth that the world is telling us to believe. He's giving us an explanation of the way things ought to be. We go to the Sermon on the Mount and we start off there. You see what we would think is God blesses those who are strong in spirit. You know, those who, who show themselves strong, super strength. You know, that's the one that God loves. That's the one that we're going to promote as being the best of the best. 
But God doesn't love the strong in spirit. He doesn't bless the strong in spirit. He blesses the poor in spirit. The one who says, I'm a filthy sinner, undeserving of God's grace. Lord, please be merciful to me. The tax collector, the prostitute. God wants to bless them as they turn from their sin and ask for God's mercy. He loves them. He cares for them. In our world, we exalt someone who looks like their whole life is put together. They look like they've got it all going for them, right? And, and maybe some of you here have been doing that. You've been kind of putting your life, making sure that everybody sees everything's all together. No problems here. No failures, no mistakes, everything is right. And whenever we look at that person, we think, yes, that's, that's a great person. That's who I want to be. That's who God loves. But God doesn't bless the person whose life looks like it's all put together. He blesses those who mourn. Those who are broken. Because their life is not as it should be, and they know it. And they're open and honest about that and willing to confess that. And God looks at that person and he recognizes their mourning over their sin and he desires to bless them and exalt them. And we look at them and maybe point and laugh and say, oh, get over yourself, whatever. But God looks at them and says, yes, that is appropriate. And all of those who look like their lives are put together when they're really not, They're fake. It's a facade. You move from those who mourn, it says, to those who are meek. To be meek is not to promote yourself. In our society of self-promotion, our world tells us you have to promote yourself. If you don't promote yourself, no one else is going to do it. And so those who promote themselves the best, those are the ones that we look up to, that we respect, that we honor as, as wonderful people. Look at them. Look at how great they say that they are. They must be that way. And we should, we should promote ourselves to make sure everybody thinks the same of us, that we're the greatest. And show how powerful we are over the world and over everyone else. The meek does not seek self-promotion. It's just not who the meek are. They seek to lift up other people before they lift up themselves. And God says, that's the kind of person who I'm going to love and bless and give all the spiritual blessings to. Not the person who promotes themselves, but the person who promotes others and allows themselves to go unrewarded for the things that they've accomplished. They don't push themselves to be the first. They let themselves be the last. And that's what I love and that's what I see. You see how that's totally backward from the world that, that is around us. When we think about the world around us we might, and who we might look up to, we might think of the person who is engaging in everything that they want to do. They're, they're, they're out there spending all of their time enjoying the pleasures of this world paying no attention to spiritual things, but they're completely focused on the things that are here, the pleasures that they can have right here and now. And because they're so focused on those things, they're devoting all their time to those things. They get to enjoy all those things. And we look at them and we say, oh man, I wish I was like that. I wish I could enjoy that kind of life. What a wonderful life that is. God must love that person so much to give them all of these wonderful blessings and allow them to enjoy all these things in this life. 
we see that those people who have decided to, to, to pursue the world and the pleasures in the world are not included in the list of those who are blessed, but those who are pure in heart. That is to say, their desires are pure. Their desires are good and right and true. They desire to do the things that are, that are appropriate for one who has been extremely blessed by God, that they actually devote themselves to serving and honoring that God and doing the things that that God would want them to do, the pure in heart, those who desire to do what is good and right and true from the inside. That's what their heart desires. And that's who God wants to bless, not the person who desires to satisfy every lust and every craving, but the person who desires to do what is good and right and true. He wants to bless them. And he also doesn't really care to bless the man or the woman who promotes themselves as righteous. Maybe not promoting themselves as great, but promoting themselves as righteous. I tithe, you know, seven times a week. I, tithe, I fast seven times a week. I give, I give, I do this, I do that. I don't sin. I'm, I've got everything put together in my life. I, I, I'm not sinning. I'm not doing all of those things and, that everybody else around me is doing. You know, this is very much like the Jews in Thessalonica and their attitudes toward themselves. I don't know of any sin against myself. And everybody might look at them and say, wow, that is a really righteous person. Look at that guy. I mean, he, he doesn't make a mistake. He doesn't do anything he's not supposed to do. And did you know God doesn't say, blessed are the righteous who are constantly living righteously? But he says, Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. See how different that is from the way that the world views it. You know, we might look at a guy and say, wow, it's a great guy. He's, he's got to be blessed by God. And God says, well, actually, I want to bless the one who recognizes they're not where they need to be. But they're wanting to grow to become what they ought to be. It's totally backwards, totally different. But it's appropriate, isn't it? Because the truth is, none of us are really righteous. And, and if we put off this show as though we are so righteous, then we're not really who we ought to be. We're faking it again. And finally, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. And you see, it's not about the person who is willing to compromise faithfulness in order to live a comfortable life. The world tells us over and over again, that's who we're supposed to be. There's probably hundreds of thousands of people in our very nation who call themselves Christians, and yet they compromise their faithfulness in order to live a comfortable life, in order to avoid conflict with people around them, in order to avoid suffering and persecution. God's not looking to bless the person who is a Christian by by name and by mouth. But he's looking to, to, to bless the person who is willing to suffer in order to be called a Christian. That's who he's looking to bless. In our society, we, we, we accept those who make all the compromises. But God's not looking at that. He's not looking for people who have such weak faith that they don't really have faith at all. They're looking for satisfaction in the ways of this world. 
So as you think about the message and that these apostles are preaching as they come out into these cities, they're teaching the people, you have to stop thinking that love from God is going to happen because the world loves you. They don't work together. They're, they're opposites. As Jesus says, you can't love God and money. You can't love the world and say that you love God. You cannot love those two things at the same time. And he's trying to teach the Thessalonians that. But they have no desire to hear it. They cannot accept these teachings because the traditions that they've learned make them feel good. Make them feel loved by God. Make them feel accepted by God. All those traditions that the Jews had passed down encourage them to promote themselves. Encourage them to, uh, to, to put off this show as though they are so righteous and so good. And, and encourage them to pursue the pleasures and passions of this world. Encourage them to compromise, to avoid persecution. Those teachings are encouraging them to live a comfortable life that is as much worldly as the Greeks. It just bears the name Jew. And they call themselves God's people. Whenever they look at these Gentiles and they think about all those promises that they have been given because they are God's people, and they look at those leading women and they think, you are not worthy of these things. They don't understand. The message is for those people. And they need it. But the message is for the Jew as well. And they need it. They're not good enough to deserve the blessings that God is promising them. But they're too foolish to see it. So they try to capture Paul. And they only get his host, Jason, and the other believers, and they're only able to get those men fine. They're not able to, to succeed in any way. And as we continue, we notice in verse 10, that very night the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea, and when they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. But when some of the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and stirred up trouble. The believers acted at once, sending Paul on to the coast while Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those escorting Paul went with him all the way to Athens. Then they returned to Berea with instruction for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. So notice how rebellious these Thessalonians were, that they were even willing to go down to Berea and to try to stop that from being taught there. They're so attached to this identity that they are God's people even though they're, they're completely rebelling against God's message for them. But notice also the Bereans. I love the Bereans. This is a wonderful contrast story. To see the Thessalonians who are so focused on themselves and the way they view the world that they're unwilling to change, and the Bereans who are listening and understanding God's will. Understand, Paul and Silas didn't change the message to make the Bereans happy so that they'll accept it. The same message was taught in Thessalonica, Thessalonica that was taught in Berea. Same message, two different places, two totally different responses. 
because one was unwilling to accept that the way they've always believed things is totally wrong. It's the same as everybody else in the world. It's just as ungodly. And the others were willing to open up God's word and study and see it for themselves. Believe it and commit to it. I love the Bereans. And as I look at our nation and how we have become so video-focused and we've become so engaged in all of these different gadgets and gizmos and all this stuff, the idea of just sitting down and reading God's Word doesn't appeal to us. We're too lazy to do that. I mean, how many of us have taken lessons that you hear on Sunday and gone home to study it to make sure that the things that I'm saying are true or the things whoever you're listening to are saying are true? How much time have you devoted to that like these Bereans do? They don't just believe whatever they're told because the guy can speak well. They study it for themselves to make sure. And then they commit to changing and being what God ultimately wants them to be. There's a wonderful message in that. First of all, the message of this whole text is that God is exposing our ungodliness. His message shows us that the way that we view success and pleasure and and enjoyment in this life is typically worldly. It's typically worldly. And we have to understand that the whole way we're viewing things is upside down. The Thessalonians were very comfortable with the world being upside down, and I think we all get very comfortable with the world being upside down, and they refused to change. But the Bereans looked at it and they said, you know what, that sounds right. Let me go study that and understand because, I mean, that's a whole lot of work. If the whole world is upside down and everything that everybody around me believes is totally backwards, that means I've got to make a lot of changes in my life and I've got to, I've got to be a totally different person than I've always been. I've got to turn, turn that whole world right side up in order to live the life that is going to be pleasing to God. And that's a lot of work. We see in this message the Bereans were noble-minded. They were open-minded. They were willing to, to believe that they could be totally wrong about everything. And that takes a lot of humility. But that's what they were. And from this we see Satan has increased the misinformation slowly like a frog put in cool water that slowly boiled up. He's he's increased that misinformation so much that the Jews have become proud and prejudiced to the point where they'd be totally rebellious against the message they've been waiting for their whole life. That's, That's an amazing statement right there. And it's something for us to take notice of in our lives. If, as we come together and, and we've come, maybe you've come to church all your life, has Satan slowly been working on you to believe things that look more like the upside-down world than the right-side-up one? That's something we need to be aware of and understand as we try to apply this message to ourselves. As we study God's Word together, are we looking at it with a lens that says, okay, that text 
looks like it's saying the whole world or the way that I'm doing things is upside down, but I know that really it's okay, so we just leave it upside down. Like, how do we handle the truth that's being told to us in the scriptures? Do we just glaze over the truths that are being told to us and not make any change? I mean, we all have hopes and desires in this world, things that we pursue on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. We have goals that we're aspiring to and and things that we want to happen in our lives. When we open up the Scriptures, how does the Scriptures impact our hopes, our dreams, our desires? Does it turn them on on its head? Does it help us understand, okay, those things are really worldly. And after we understand that those hopes and desires for things that are not godly, that are not spiritual, that are not leading to eternal life, after we understand those things are bad for us, are we going to act like the Thessalonians or are we going to act like the Bereans? Are we going to let our world be turned right side up? Are we going to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are we going to be poor in spirit? Are we going to mourn and be broken over our sins. Whenever we open up the Bible and it teaches us that our relationships are not what it should be, that instead of being harsh and judgmental like we've always been, we're actually called to be compassionate, merciful, gracious. Are we going to justify the way we've always been? Or are we going to let God's word transform us? If we refuse to accept change, the picture in this text is there's no hope. If we refuse to let our world be turned right side up and we're going to rebel against the commands and the desires of our God, Jesus didn't come to bless us. Jesus didn't come to bless us. And we need the blessing. We don't have hope without the blessing. That's submission. That's what I'm talking about. That's submission. How can we do this? We have to fully submit our will to God's will. It takes transitioning the way we speak to one another. Instead of just talking about just random things that are going on in life and in the world around us, we need to be talking about spiritual things that are going on in our life. In our houses, we need to be talking about our spiritual goals. What is our, what is, what's our spiritual goal? What's our desire for our children as they grow up? We need to have those conversations with one another, and we need to explain that to our children, and we need to put a plan in place to help motivate them in their spiritual goals and help one another hold each other accountable for not reaching those goals. Our whole mindset has to be shifted from focusing on success and things in this world to thinking about God's will for us and fulfilling our purpose to be the body of Christ on earth. Our conversations have to be all about that. Our actions, our schedules have to be rearranged to allow for that. Because that's right side up. That's the appropriate life for someone who has accepted the grace and mercy that God is offering to us through Jesus Christ. 
the appropriate response. The scripture reading this morning was from Ephesians 4. And it talks about uh, we're not to live like Gentiles anymore. Their foolish hearts have been darkened. And they are pursuing things that are futile and vain. Things that will never satisfy them. Things that will never give them eternal life. But that's not the way you learned Christ. If you've heard about Him. And you were instructed by Him. God is calling for us to put to death the old man who lived for this world and to raise up a new man who has a renewed mind and a renewed heart that is completely focused on God's will for us. If you're studying and and you, you see there's something that's wrong, something I'm not doing, you need to ask for help. If you don't see that renewed mind and renewed heart, You need to talk to a brother or sister in Christ about that and ask for prayers. And you need to start studying and learning how you can become more in line with what God wants us to be and fulfill the purpose that God has given us. We all need to do that. That's that's our mission. That's our goal that we need to be talking about and engaged in in our lives. If you're here this morning and you're not a member of the body of Christ, We want you to know the grace is made available to you and God can turn your world right side up if you'll let him. There's a lot of imperfect people here who in some ways have turned their world right side up. In other ways, it's still upside down and we're still trying to figure that out. It's a slow process. Satan has slow cooked us to make us think that we're okay to do these worldly things and we're trying to weed those out and we're imperfect in that, but we're trying. And we want to help you in any way that we can. Because if your world doesn't get shifted right side up, if you're not really trying to get it the way it's supposed to be, you're not submitting your will to God like those Bereans, then there's no hope for you or me. Our hope is fully in the grace of God, which is offered to those who will submit. And if you're ready to do that and we can help you, please come as we stand and as we sing.